Oh, dear God. <laughs> yeah, I'm dying here. Great. You know that in the movies when they want to show that the character is dying, the character is coughing at one point during the movie and then you know that mm -hmm. like 20 minutes later they will die. And that's what uh, I feel like now. Well, this is going to be a long post podcast, so try and like hold on for maybe like 120 minutes. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes and welcome to our 100th episode. Yarn was too lazy slash sick to make us sound effects and I'm, I'm super, really disappointed but what he did do is um quite some months ago we got some complaints that Yoram sounds a little bit too German um which is largely because Yoram as it turns out is is German yeah um so we spent all of the money that has ever been donated to us trying to alter Yoram and make him less German and we've managed to change his voice and give it a sort of huskier <laughs> huskier tone Yeah, I think that was what people were complaining about. Not enough vocal fry in this show. Yeah. So there's more for me now. Which is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is more associated with the US, I think. That's kind of the cliche, right? So yeah. you're welcome, you random person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is all for you. It's it's always been all for you. But now, particularly, <laughs> all of Yoram's vocal sexiness is all for you. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, listeners... Um, This is my voice for today. I have a thermos of tea here to help me through it, but I can't Sorry, promise anything. Sorry, what do you have there? Is it only a thermos of tea? A thermos of tea and a glass of straight gin on the rocks, so... Beautiful. Yeah, it's... Mm. Yeah, I, I thought about putting alcohol in my hot tea, but I think this is one of the things it's that I hate the most, is like hot alcohol. Like, I don't like Glühwein, which is a big thing in Germany. It's mulled like wine. Mulled English, wine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um... There is like a thing like grog, which is like hot rum. I hate it when there's like rum in my coffee <laughs> or there is also like a version where you put rum in a tea. What about like a Bailey's or something like um, minty in a hot chocolate? No, don't no alcohol. Like as soon as I can like taste that very, um, which like it's evaporating earlier, the alcohol, mm -hmm, and therefore mm -hmm. it's like more intense, I find. And so I, I really don't like that. Like no, no hot alcohol for me, please. Okay. Um, so uh -oh. that's why I have it on on ice, which and then I'm countering it with hot hot tea as a sh as a chaser. Cool, it's extra classy. Um, yeah, as mentioned, this is our 100th episode, so things are a little bit different. It's sort of 100th episode part A. I think we're going to do 100th episode part B, which is like going to infuriate Yoram in the future. I don't know if we just go from. 100A and 100B to 102 or... I also wondered about that. Right? I, I have no idea. I spent some amount of minutes today thinking about this and then thinking, you know, if there's a joint first place, then there's no second place and only third place. So should I... I, I, I mean... Too it, much brain power went into this decision. And I there think was, it's not a big problem to have two episodes that are called num uh, 100 in like the in the list. And for my final names, it also works out. I think we could do it um, in a two-part show and then... Yeah, I think it will work out. Cool. But, but so, it, <laughs> I appreciate that you thought about this, but yeah, it, it will be fine. I mean, it's pathetic, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so what we decided to do this time is something a little bit different, where we just thought we'd come up with 100 random plant facts. Yeah. And that we're was, not doing... I wanted like that pew, 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 pew soundtrack. <laughs> where like pew, pew, pew. Uh, yeah. Um, but we um, won't have do all 100 today. No. That's why no, we do two parts. You don't need to hear us speak for that long, I think. Yeah. And also some of the facts are supposed to be short. I'm a little bit concerned about... 
So at the top of the said podcast, we said we were going to be talking about 50 different plot facts. Mm-hmm. This is later days, Tegan, and later days, Yoram. We've now done an entire podcast and we've realized that like, we actually can't bear the sound of our own voices for five <laughs> hours, which is the amount of time it would take to give 50 facts. So we've decided to do four podcasts instead each with 25 facts, which will also see us through to the end of the summer break. Yeah. Which is good news for you all. (laughs) Yoram's voice will get gradually less sexy as we go through, and he gets better, in better health. What we want to say is, um, have fun with the first 25 facts. And please keep on sending us more facts so that we can keep it up until 100, because (laughs) we're not feeling super optimistic right now. I feel... (laughs) <laughs> I like plants, but do I like plants a hundred facts worth? I do. Okay. I mean, we can try right. it. Do you want to start with it? Do you have a word that you want to scream at Yes, me? butterfly. Uh, I have something that's not really butterflies, but um, something related to the blog post that we just published. It's about another insect. It's about bees. And it's about the fact that flowers, some flowers can hear when a bee is around and then add sugar to its nectar so it becomes more attractive to the bees that follow. Um, so it's not exactly how, a butterfly. How are they hearing the bees? I think that's good enough. I'll take that. Bee, bee fact is number one. <laughs> I like, yeah. Um, yeah, they're doing that. Probably, uh, it's not a hundred percent clear how it how it works. They figured out in the in the paper that it's only like a very a very narrow band of frequencies that the plant reacts mm-hmm. to, which coincides with the frequencies of of a bee hovering ab- uh, um, above the plant. Uh, and they think it might be due to the resonance. So the petals are swinging in the sound waves, mm-hmm. and they resonate. So it's sort of self amplifying at this specific point. And this mm-hmm. then is enough for the plant to to trigger some reaction that leads to more sugar in the nectar. And if it's another frequency, the, the leaves just randomly bounce and don't resonate and don't sort of self-amplify. And then that's why you don't get wind triggering that or, for example, bats that cry at a very, very different frequency. So that's at least the hypothesis that hasn't been tested yet, how that exactly works. But um very cool stuff. Um, that's from from Bethany Nichols, um, who's also running France with Benefits, and she suggested that on Twitter, that fun fact, and I'm very thankful for that. That was really cool, because I could read up on it and write an entire blog post about it, which is milking it for I, all it's worth. <laughs> I have a fact that actually follows on from that, and it's something that we've previously written a blog post about, and it's about the fact that certain orchids actually beat up bees as a way to help them... Mm-hmm. Um, do pollination so it's kind of a weird thing to do because like the bees are helping the plants have sex they're taking the pollen from one flower um to another flower thus you know being the the creepy little mediator in between that that sex life um but these orchids they're cast uh, catacetum orchids and the males look very different from the female flowers and the males have this kind of spring system that when the bee lands they like have a spring that whomps the bee and as it like hits them it punches pollen onto them <laughs> and the bee not only like gets the pollen on it which is a win for the plant but then it's so distressed it doesn't go to any other male flowers and it goes instead only to female flowers after that and the female <laughs> and f- male flowers look very different so like the bees can actively make the choice so this kind of abuse only works because the two sexes look quite different but it's like <laughs> A benefit for those males because then they've basically prevented competition from other male orchids from like getting their pollen on them because the bees like hell no I'm going straight to those females and they really 
get that direct transfer. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's kind of mean. I have another mean fact about insects and plants. Um, that's that's a fact that Ali Baumgartner sent us, um, Paleolorex, on Twitter, I think, and on, mm -hmm. on Instagram. We had her We've on, had the, her on show. the podcast. Yeah. Um, and she contributed the fact that there are some plants that are producing a kind of, kind of um, terpenoid that are called phytoactysteroids. And okay, so terpenoid is like just... A, a terpenoid is just a sort of secondary metabolite, so it's kind mm -hmm. of a chemical. And what was the thing, phyto what? Phytoactysteroid. So with your amazing like ancient Greek and Latin, I don't know which one of the two it actually is. I probably mean, Greek. Phyto, phyto is plant. Yeah. And then the steroid feels like a steroid. Yeah. So it was a little bit acti. Acti, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's also about it. I would not know. Um, it's it's a um, class of, of hormones in insects that's involved in molting. So when the the insects shed their outer skin and sort of grow, they have to like r get rid of their old skin from time to time mm -hmm. because it gets literally too small. Um, so they molt. So this and these okay, plants so this make hormones that induce molting. Is it it's inducing. Okay, so that, that was I was going to guess if it was like preventing them. In my imagination, it was like preventing them from molting. And then these poor little bugs are like stuck in adolescence forever. But they no. want them to molt. Yeah. Why do they want them to molt? Because then they molt and then they molt again and again. And it's every single time an insect is molting, it's a very exhausting process. Like it takes a lot of energy from the insect and they can only do it so often. So when they are triggered before it's their time it stresses them so much that the insects die it essentially reduces the fitness of the insects to the point that they die um and can't eat the plants anymore so it's pretty much like pushing the fast forward button on the age of the insects uh to avoid the them eating the plant so that's pretty kind cool. of terrifying yeah um okay so the other word i want to scream at you next is going to be uh edible edible yeah i have two two things for that um one is from also from twitter i asked for like some input on twitter and i got so many really cool um fun facts from people and this is one is from an account called fully operational gardening apple apple mm -hmm. um and it's a small sort of nomenclature tidbit is that most of the things that we actually call vegetables are, f are fruit um so if you think of like peppers cucumbers tomatoes peas all of them Pumpkin. come from a flower and mm. therefore they are fruit and not vegetables. Unlike, for example, like leafy vegetables that are the mm. leaves, like a salad, that you could rather say, yeah, it's a true vegetable. Um, and if you want to be annoying at parties, um, you can now say like, make it like a guacamole and be like, this is a fruit salad. Cool. Most of our facts will actually make you more annoying if shared at parties. I think that's the, <laughs> the take-home message. Pretty much the tagline of our podcast for the last 100 episodes is like, we'll this podcast will make you more annoying. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I only like seeded in the, the idea of edible because I have sort of three associated facts about crops. And it's mostly about the, the idea of alternative crops. So like I... I'm always constantly fascinated by how few crop plants we eat. So the first fact is that there are about 30,000 edible plant species in the world. Mm -hmm. But out of all those 30,000, only about 6,000 of them have ever really been cultivated for food. So there's lots of things that we can eat, but we don't cultivate. Yeah, but what is the boundary there? Like, I can, I'm sure I can eat like pine cones or something that doesn't make me sick, but... It's also probably not very nice to eat that. Like, is it any anything that I can eat and survive, or is that anything I can eat and actually it it, it is actually nutritious for me? 
uh, edible. I'm guessing it has to be nutritious, like not anti-nutritious. So, so I guess no you have salads. to be able to get. Well, I mean, a pine cone also you would get calories from it, right? Like there's there's oils so, in there yeah. and you can digest them. They're not just like passing through and they're not like anti-nutritious. They're not like poisoning you or making you like lose volume in <laughs> unpleasant ways um so i guess that's edible but i guess like a pine would be a good example of something that is edible but that hasn't been cultivated because like as a tree that takes like 30 years to mature or whatever i'm making this up i don't know how long pine trees take to mature right in with me right in with your You've angry notes an to me entire book about that <laughs> what's that all right <laughs> i don't know 30 if the, years if the number plus or minus <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess that wouldn't have been cultivated. Mm-hmm. And it's the same lately. I know Australia, we have this kind of like famous slash infamous thing where we only have one plant species that has become like an actual cultivated commercial crop, which is macadamia nuts. Um, and it's not that there's nothing edible. Like we had indigenous people living on our land for at least 50,000 years. I mean, eating a lot of like animals, but also plants. It's just that a lot of that stuff is not great for, for cultivating, which is mm-hmm. a different barrier okay so that's the first fact is like thirty thousand edible plants but we only eat about six to seven thousand of them we've only cultivated them but of those only approximately 170 or so are actually grown at a commercial scale so that's then like lots of buying and selling happening mm-hmm. so maybe yarm you can name those 170 How <laughs> okay <laughs> So it's rice, it's wheat. I it's would go alphabetical. Apple, <laughs> avocado, aardvark. Um, yeah, and then so that's the second fact. And then, yeah, the third, the third fact is kind of where Yarm was already going, which there's basically three stable, stable crops. Rice. Corn and wheat. Yeah, rice, wheat and maize. And those make up about 40% of all of the daily calories that we humans are eating, which is insane, right? Almost half of the calories are coming from like three plants. Yeah. And actually... Oh, I have something for maize as well. Finish your fact and I'll look for my (laughs) maize fact in the list here. This is so rude. (laughs) And also, I mean, like, so that's 40% from just rice, wheat and maize. If you go up to about 12 plant species and maybe five animals, I'm guessing pig, chicken, cow sheep what's the fifth one uh pigs, pig chicken cow, cow sheep. sheep pig chicken cow sheep <laughs> lamb that is sheep <laughs> it's smaller <laughs> <laughs> also sheep <laughs> calf also sheep <laughs> veal no also cow <laughs> veal also cow <laughs> shit <Eggs? laughs> Ch- chicken chicken five animals chicken pig cow I'm vegetarian. Shut up. No, you're not. I've seen you, like, eat entire chickens. I don't know what the fifth one is. This is, this is not interesting. Um, the fifth one is kangaroo. Let's say that. Who knows? So, about um, if you have just 12 plant species, I also don't know what those 12 are, and five animal species, we're pretty certain about four of them. We have no idea what the fifth is, right, in with angry messages. That's 75% of the world's food. It's just from, like, 17 species all yeah. up. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And it sounds like something that would mean that we are relying on like a too little a number to have like like it sounds like there's a risk yeah. that if just like one of them fails, then like we lose a big part of our nutrition, which is like granted like it there is a risk. But at least for maize, um genetically speaking, um any two maize plants are genetically more different from one another than humans are different from chimpanzees 
because sorry, this is, this is a new fact. We've moved on to a new, new fact. fact. That's a new fact. Like I should have played the sound, but I thought it would be annoying if we hear the <laughs> same <laughs> sound fifty times in, a, in an episode. Um, so that's a new new fact. Like um, yeah, fact the, number eight. Maze has so many different. I'm surprised you can keep count. I had no idea which number we're at by now. Um, they. Um, yeah, they have such big genetic diversity in their genome and in the in the breeding populations um, that if you take, two, I think it's any two mice cultivars. I imagine if you take the same cultivar and you put them on the field next to one another, chances are they are genetically much more similar. But if you take like two random cultivars and compare them, and they are both maize, both grown commercially, they are just by numbers of differences so much more different than if you would compare a human genome to a chimpanzee genome. So I think like the number I always thought for humans and chimpanzees like ninety seven percent similarity between a human and chimpanzee yeah. is that about right? I think so as well. I think that's what I heard as well. And also like between human and pig, and stuff like that. I mean, this is this is always one of those weird questions for me about how we define species. I mean, this the problem of the the genomic era is that the more we can sequencing, the more we're like oh this one bird that looks all the same is actually like 33 different species of bird. And, you know, it's problematic with animals, but when you start looking at plants, it's even more chaotic. And then when you start looking at like bacteria, like small, tiny things, yeah. it's just, we we knew nothing. We <laughs> uh, do, Should I give you a prompt for your next fact, Tegan? I want to hear something about color. Oh, yeah, I have a great one about color. Um, so the link to color is actually in the, the name of the species. The species is called um, Paulinella as the genus and Chromo, Chromatophora. Chromatophora. Paulinella Chromatophora. Mm -hmm. And Chroma is related to color. So I think mm -hmm. that was super cool segue on my behalf. Yeah, that's really good. So what's the fact? Okay, so this is this is one of my favorite species because I, I'm sure like a lot of you who have sort of studied plants especially know, but like pretty much everything that is like plant-like and green and photosynthetic on the earth it's all come from one single species that has a common ancestor and that's basically because the ability to have a chloroplast happened when a, a eukaryote so like a normal cell basically ate a cyanobacteria and then instead of digesting it enslaved it and made it into the chloroplast and that happened one time um, and basically from that event that was like 1.5 billion years ago, I think, everything green on this planet has basically arisen. And we can't really work out why that hasn't happened again. And so the first fact, the first part of this fact is that one suggestion as to why it hasn't happened very often is that you need very specific circumstances to make it happen. So like that that little green cyanobacteria, it's like a, it's a basically an algae, that was supposed to be food for that bigger single-celled organism and it didn't digest it. And the reason it didn't digest it is a bit weird. And then the fact that it was not only able to like keep it there, but also use it and turn it into something where there was like this relationship internally where the, the little green algae cyanobacteria thing became helpful and gave sugars to the cell and the cell sort of gave things back and protect like that that's that's a relationship built on trust you know that usually takes a lot of time and really special like if you're a green thing that's going to get eaten why would you give your sugars up to the outside world it doesn't make any sense um so people said you know the reason it hasn't happened more than one time is that it's really really rare and one of the hypotheses is that 
it doesn't just need those two things to happen. It doesn't just need the eukaryote, so like the kind of cell, single-celled organism, and the green bit. It needs a third player. Mm-hmm. And this is the menage a trois theory. Um, and the third player, some people think, is some sort of chlamydia, basically. It's a relative of the chlamydia, and the idea is that the eukaryote was already infected by chlamydia, and by having this third player, that third player could sort of help mediate. It had it was giving other skills mm-hmm. that would help this transfer from one to the so it's sort of like a communication mediator. Um and it's only with that that chlamydia that things went forward. And that's why it hasn't happened again. So that's kind of the first fact. That would be fact number nine. Um, is that maybe the reason it's only happened once is because of the menage a trois, the need for having chlamydia. Um, it's not, it's not like the chlamydia we get. Yeah, it's not the chlamydia we get right now. It's like a sort of a, a relative of that chlamydia. It's like, yeah, not necessarily the human one. So then the thing about the, the color is this Paulinella chromatophora. And this, this genus of Paulinella seems to have done a new thing where it's taken up another cyanobacteria. So it seems to be the only other example we know where that development of green things, that development of plants is happening once again, where an organism that is already a eukaryote has taken up a symbiont, has taken up a green thing, like made it an internal symbiont and has started the process of turning this into something like a chloroplast. Mm-hmm. And this is just like incredible to me. So, yeah, these palinellas have something called a cyanel or a chromatophore. So that's this organelle, this chloroplast-like thing that has the colors. And yeah, it's the only other known possible event. And it also happened really recently. So it's only 140 million years ago. Um, well, that's recent. Which compared to one point five I mean compared to one point <laughs> five billion years, it's really recent. Yeah. So we can also like it's not only amazing because it's happened again, but it's also amazing because we can then look at that to sort of it's very early, so we can see how this thing can progress from being sort of just an organism living inside another organism, which happens all the time. Like we have tons of things living inside us, to actually being like not an organism, but an organelle, like, yeah, something like a chloroplast. That's like inherited from like generation to generation. It's not something that has to like reinfect again or sort of pass along during cell division, but it's like actively maintained and becomes an integral part of the entire system. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, and I think there's like evidence already that this 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 cyanel, this thing that's becoming this organelle, yeah, it doesn't have all of the genes it would need to function alone, so it can no longer go out into the world by itself because it needs to have them delivered from the nucleus of that that mothership, that palinella. Mm-hmm. So I just, I've every time I hear talks on this, I'm just so, it's really <laughs> one of my favorite things. It's so incredible. It's so incredible that like somebody sort of discovered this and we can now study this and that it exists that we can like look at it. And it, it really fills me with excitement. I mean, I'm a chloroplast biologist, like this is my sort of my field. But, you know, when you're working in your your own field day after day, you get a little bit bored of it. Um, and this is something where it just reignites <laughs> Yeah. Like, yes, amazing. Yes, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I think is that now, um, I mean, this process, like it happened 140 million years ago, and it will probably take several more, like thousands to millions of years to progress on an evolutionary scale. So 
while we can observe it so, sort of as it is happening, we can't observe as it is happening because it's happening so slowly, like from generation to generation, that within a, mm. a scientist's lifetime, this symbiosis won't change much. It won't suddenly, like, overnight snap. It's a fully grown symbiont. And you're like, oh, it's good that I was there. Like, luckily, I postponed my holidays. Otherwise, I would have missed it. Like, these evolutionary processes are so slow. And it's really cool that we can, like, look early into this. Mm. But um, it takes many, many, many lifetimes to actually yeah, observe the entire it's, it's process. It's not like we're, we're looking... Like, the process itself still takes a long time. It's not like we're looking for a longer period of time. That's, like, not feasible. It's that we've just caught it at a different... We've caught yeah. it with its pants down, with its, like, you know, halfway in and halfway out. And, <laughs> yeah. Sexy things happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 are you done with the facts around that? Should I do can, a can color I, fact? You can do another oh, fact. Oh, you've got colors. Give me colors. I have a fact from Rahul Kumar on Twitter who said that there is um, a plant uh, that's called Nescodon or like the genus is called Nescodon and they produce a nectar. Nescodon. Nescodon. Um, it sounds like either like a type of dinosaur, like Iguanodon or <laughs> a, a, a drink by Nestle that's like for like the dog. For like the mafia bosses, these are my two guesses. Now, this is um this is a plant species in Mauritius, 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 mm-hmm. um like the islands um in the Pacific Ocean. Um, so on this island in the sea, um, there's a plant growing and it produces a nectar that's like brightly colored red. And when they looked at why that could be, is they they found that there is some lizards, some geckos that pref- like specifically go to the plants that have the most red nectar and they say it's a sort of an honesty signal for the plants to to indicate like how much nectar they have and sort of honestly portray like the reward that they're giving when somebody's visiting them to pollinate them and this increases pollinator efficiency then because then they visit all of the plants that have like a lot of nectar and that's probably also the fittest plants um, or that there might be a link um, between these two things and um, yeah they did an experiment where they gave geckos nectar that's clear a nectar that's colored red and the geckos would always pick the colored nectar over the clear nectar so it's clearly like attractive to them to to pick out which flowers are worth visiting i i love the concept of honest signal so much this is also this idea that like berries changing color when they're ripe is is useful for everyone involved because you know, as it ripens, it gets sweeter, which means it's tastier and has more nutrition for, um, like, the birds or whatever animal is going to eat it and disperse it. But it's also really useful for the plant to make sure that the fruits are not taken before the seeds are developed enough to be able to survive. So mm-hmm. this idea of honest signaling in a win-win scenario is is really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can do something on color. Yeah, do But it was more... <laughs> It's just more obnoxious. So I guess I I wanted to bring in the kind of chloroplast discussion just because this is one of my my great loves of my life. I studied um, chloroplast development. And just to mention, chloroplasts are these bits inside the plant, the green bits, which is where the photosynthesis happens. Um, and they're super, super important. But the thing is that chloroplasts like are photosynthetic, organelles mm-hmm. but there is more than just one type of plastid so chloroplasts sort of belong to a family of things called plastids and these differentiate so depending on where in the plant you are there are different types of plastids that have different function and i think that's something that's not 
discussed super often. Like we mm-hmm. learn about chloroplasts in school textbooks, but there are also chromoplasts. Yeah, which in, brings in tomato, for example, they bring the red color. Like the the chloroplasts, when the fruit ripens, it's first green. That's chloroplasts, mm-hmm. and then they change into chromoplasts when they accumulate all of the lycopene. Lycopenes then make it red. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, so, so chromoplast, chroma means color, as we've said. So like chromoplast is the color thing. So they're found in, in ripe red tomatoes, but they're also found in flowers as a way to make the flowers pretty. Um, and as Joran pointed out, like these types of plastids can change from one type to the other. So a chloroplast can become a chromoplast as a tomato plant ripens. There's another type of plastic that's called an atioplast, which is my favorite. Do you yeah, know what that you is, Yeah, you studied that. This is <laughs> I a, studied that. A chloroplast that isn't green yet. It's sort of a developing mm-hmm. chloroplast um, before it actually makes all of the photosynthetic machinery. It has like some yep. stuff already, already present, but it's not green yet. There's no chlorophyll um, and a lot of the proteins are not there yet. Yeah, so that's like if you grow your plant in the dark, the the leaves don't f- turn fully green. They're sort of pale. And that's because to make a chloroplast, you need light. That's one of the important ingredients of making chloroplasts. And if not, you get a tyoplast. You can also get things like amyloplasts, which are found... Um, they, they contain starch. That's where the name mm-hmm. comes from. And I imagine they're found in like tubers, for example, in potatoes, mm-hmm. or like storage organs that contain a lot of starch. Then you have amyloplasts. Yeah, and it roots and stuff, yeah. So there's like different types of plastids and I think that's like sometimes forgotten because when we talk about chloroplasts, we often say things like, oh, the chloroplast has a genome and the chloroplast genome is X, Y, Z. But actually, you know, a, a chromoplast also has that same genome, but they've just activated different genes from that genome. It's turned off some of the photosynthetic genes and it's turned on some things which will help it make like more colorful mm-hmm. things or, or it's got things delivered from the nucleus to help make colors. So I think like... The idea of plastids being the the broader, more acceptable term is what I wanted to push as one of my facts. That was fact number 12. Is that plastids are plastic? Is that the right word? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) Yeah, I have something also related to plastids and color um, uh, from Luis de Luna on Twitter again. Um, And there's some some begonia species. uh, They are very iridescent blue. You often find Mm -hmm. them in in the jungle, like in in rainforests, in the undergrowth, um, in the shadows. Um, You find these like weirdly blue begonias and they don't have a blue pigment in them. Uh, Like it's so often the case, like the color blue is not... Uh, made in nature very often as a pigment but more often i i think or at least very often often enough made from like a physics principle like um like the way the light is uh reflected off a surface can change the color of the light and for example some some butterflies have like these nanostructures on their on their wings that make them uh, appear blue we talked about that i think also in blueberries um there's like uh, a way that they can um, arrange the the membrane stacks inside to um uh, yeah, it's, it's not the blueberries that we eat, but there's a certain type of um, plant that makes blue-coloured berries, and it doesn't use sort of the colour. It instead uses these, like, structural colour instead of, like, pigment colour. Yeah, and in these begonias, um, they create this iridescence effect um, by making lamelloplasts. So it's um, they arranging the, the membranes inside the chloroplast as, like, sort of um, only lamellae, which is one type of organizational there and it's like these nanostructures again these stacks like a big stack of thick papers and when the light mm-hmm. hit, hits it um, it changes the properties of the light to appear iridescent blue 
So it's a lamello plus. A lamello is like these layers. It's like these these, mm-hmm. these paper layers of membrane. Um, and then the plasters, it means it's plastered. It means it's like kind of a chloroplast friend. Yeah. Very and cool. there's a paper that we're, that we're also linking and they found that there's like, they say um, they call them lamelloplasts and mini chloroplasts that are responsible for that. So um, mm-hmm. there's like more and more little diverse types of chloroplasts that are appearing um, whenever you look too closely at a plant. Um, you realize, oh, this is not actually like a textbook chloroplast. This is some weird, different thing. Um, in this case, it makes like these blue begonia and it helps the begonia um, to take in more light um, because in the understory, they, the light is very limiting and this helps them to have um, a, a little bit higher efficiency of their photosynthetic rate with the available light that they get. And that's why they're doing this. I think we've talked about that briefly in a podcast, so I'm going to link that one here as well. Yeah. I have another fact about chloroplasts. I'm sorry to be obsessed with this, um, or plastids, <laughs> I should say. So, like, one of the things about, like, becoming a plastid, like, plastids, chloroplasts and their friends, these plastids, they have some genes. They have their own genome, and they they use these genes, and they make proteins, and those proteins are involved in, like, mostly photosynthesis stuff. But all up, there's only about 100 like proteins that can be made from the genome of the chloroplast. And for a chloroplast to work properly, it needs about 3,000 different proteins. So a lot of the proteins that are inside the chloroplast have to get made by the nucleus of the plant and like made in the cytoplasm and then delivered into the chloroplast. Mm-hmm. And we know basically that there's an address, there's kind of the start of the protein has a little tag on it called a targeting peptide. And that tells the chloroplast like that tells the protein that it should be delivered like yeah. an amazon package into the chloroplast yeah yeah it's a shipping a shipping label essentially yeah so one of the things that i find really cool is this discussion about how targeting peptides came to exist so again imagine mm-hmm. that like once upon a time 1.6 billion years ago or so the chloroplast itself was not a plastid it was not something inside a plant it was a free living thing so how how do you get a situation where something is delivered into that living thing? Viruses. Yeah, it's pretty close. So there's this idea that these targeting peptides, these things that get sucked into the chloroplast, basically get taken in, um, are originally sort of related to antimicrobial peptides. So there are these... Mm. Yeah, there are these these little small protein sequences that are supposed to damage um, things. So damage things like microbes or even things like the the, the plastid our ancestor. And there's the concept I think is loosely that in order to prevent itself from being attacked from the outside by these little like nasty war peptides, these plastid ancestors, the chloroplast ancestors worked out that if they like absorb them and suck them inside they can destroy them from the inside so these things like work on like destroying the outside layers but if you like bring them inside they mm-hmm. no longer have control of you so there's this idea that then targeting peptides that are found in the modern plant that tell a protein to go to the chloroplast have this origin of these sort of antimicrobial war peptides um that the original chloroplast ancestor the cyanobacteria already knew how to to bring into its folds ah cool and then that from that on cool it, it evolved then like from that on it like they got duplicated got like additional functions and it sort of wiggled its way 
into the complex system of, of transit pipelines yeah, we have today. Yeah, it's, it's this thing of like, I mean, this is kind of the, the secret of evolution, right? Like a huge amount of what we see is not somebody making something from scratch. It's somebody basically stealing from something else, like co-opting something, altering it slightly, fixing it up for its own purpose. It's not, yeah, you know... Very few things that we see now are completely novel. They've been adapted from something that existed before as like a gene or something. An extra fun fact out of the line for, for that because it's not it's not in, in plants. But I've I've seen a TikTok today talking about like there was a discussion about like intelligent design and how intelligent can be uh, like if intelligent design is possible, um, then we would see intelligent decisions being made. And there's one thing in 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 mammals that originate from fish. Um, in fish, they have like a, a nervous strand, like a, a, like a, a line of nerve cells that this goes is the through the heart. Thing. Yeah, the giraffe thing exactly. Um, so they go to the heart, and then during the evolution, um, it sort of went around the heart and then up again to a part in our neck. Um, and then as animals evolved, the neck, like the necks for some animals got much longer, for example, for the giraffe. And so this, this nervous strand, this, this nervous system doesn't go like from the brain right into the neck where it's needed. It goes all the way down to the heart and then back up again um, to the point where it's needed, which is not intelligent design. It makes it, makes it much longer and slower and more complicated. Evolution doesn't work like this, that you look at the finished product and, and what is the most clever way to design this. It's like you take what you got and then you go from there in very, very small steps. And sometimes these steps lead to things that look ridiculous when you look at the end product. But if you look at the history, this was the only way to go. So um, this is, is, is very similar to what you just said. Um so yeah, that was a freebie. Um, I have no real fact uh, about plants. And we're talking about like stuff fact in the cell. 15. Stuff, stuff in the in cell. The cell. <laughs> and um, it's also a small thing. I think something we talked about before. It's that plants have these like small stones in their cells. And these are like starch granules. They're super dense. <laughs> Damn it. Do you have that as well? <laughs> I think you win 100 points. I think, uh, t- keep going. I think I've got this fact as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just about... Uh, what is this? What is, it? is it starch or what? I think it's starch. Um, It's just about mm. gravitropism. It's just like the basic idea that oh, plants can tell... it's different. Can, ...can tell up and down um, in the world because they have tiny rocks in them, essentially, that sink to the bottom of the cell. They are linked to actin filaments that can sense the location of these these stones. And this is how plants so know where it's down. So it's basically a stone attached to to wires, and then yeah. when you know all these strings, and then when it falls to the bottom, the wires get tensed because there's a rock falling, and then they can tell based on that like where they're being yeah. pulled towards. Yeah, and then they relate that into like signaling molecules, and then it tells the plant like if you grow this way, you grow downwards, and if you grow the other way, you grow upwards. Like in case you can't see the light, for example, like in roots they have to grow downwards or if a tree topples over um it suddenly everything that was growing upwards is now growing horizontally but they can just reorientate themselves and start growing roots in the into the ground again and shoots up into the air and this is based on tiny stones in the cells and it's just like a very basic biology fact but i i like to remember like remind myself sometimes that it's like very simple physics sort of inside mm-hmm. the plant cells um, like floating it's something or that you can actually rocks. you can actually visualize it right like yeah. it makes sense like you can sort of imagine this sort of puppet system with the rocks on the end of the strings and yeah yeah so the thing I wanted to say was like not actually that luckily so <laughs> instead of having stones in the cells I was thinking of plants having silica in the cells 
And I think you also know what this is about, Yoram. So um, plants can absorb silicon. They have this sort of silica acid that – silicic acid, sorry. So it's um, – they bring it up from the earth and they accumulate it in their cells and it's used as defense and it sort of has two two modes of defense the first one is that you just sort of put the silica in the inside the cell um and that actually has a chemical activity it stops certain molecules that pests might use from working properly so they have like pests send out these signals which like help them like attack and you know break down the plant's sensor uh, defenses but silica can be one of these um sorry silicon can be one of these things that blocks those attack molecules so that's one thing but it also can just sort of form physical bodies inside the plant so inside the leaf there's these tiny accumulation these like deposits of of silicon and they're called phytoliths um which is i think basically phyto is plant and lith is like stone right so it's basically like little stones inside the plant which is very similar to what you were talking about but these are basically the equivalent of when you munch on spinach or lettuce and you forgot to wash it properly in the sand and it's really unpleasant these are like much smaller and inside the plant not outside but it has really the same effect if you're a herbivore if you're a caterpillar coming along and you're like biting on the plant you get these kind of nasty little sharp stone bits and they're kind of like little yeah little sand or little knives that cut you when you're eating and it's it's physically defending the plant it's like knives inside the plant to prevent animal attack which i think is yeah it's internal sandpaper for things eating on it it's like yeah nasty so cool yeah. So those are called phytoliths, and they yeah they come from silicon. I have something about something very hard in plants as well, um, like hard rocks. But this time it's like the outside shell. Do you want to um, think about? I mean, I gave some of it away already. Like, what is one of the hardest and toughest biomaterials on Earth, and where do you find that on a plant? I mean, it's about plants, so that's not a big surprise. The trichomes? No, I mean they break off very easily. I mean, they, I think they're hard like glass a little bit, but they also break easily. Um, all I'm coming in my head is like, what's the strongest muscle in the human body? It's the tongue. <laughs> so all I'm thinking is like, does the plant have a tongue? Is there a tongue in the plant? Um, I would guess like the tips of the root are pretty good at like forcing their way through things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good guess. But in this case, it's um, spores and pollen grains. Um, oh. because they have to be very tough to be deep, to be protected and um, they, there's a compound called sporopollenin um, that's considered one of the toughest biomaterials um, or most chemically inert biopolymers to put it like te- in a technical ter- in chemically term chemically inert so it means chemically inert means that it also doesn't react it doesn't like yeah yeah, when when it meets oxygen or it meets like acid, it doesn't like have a response to that chemically either. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. and that means that it can also be digested only very very slowly, if at all. So um, that, w- okay. that that means that if there's like this sporopollenin shells sitting somewhere in the ground, unlike most other biomaterials, it doesn't rot away. So that's actually what we use it for today. Um, when you you can find these these structures in sediments, and then based on these structures in the sediment, you can figure out what kind of plants were around because you can identify the pollen shells in the sediment because nothing really exists to break them down. I mean, eventually, with like the right conditions, they will also break down, but it takes so much longer than like standard leaf tissue that um, can be degraded mm-hmm. by fungi in like a matter of days. Um, uh, and 
this uh yeah can't be can't be degraded and so yeah plants make one of the toughest biomaterials or most chemically inert biopolymers in the world i guess i'm i'm sort of unsure if i should go to biopolymers from here or somewhere else okay i guess i'll go to biopolymers so what what do you what would you say is the most abundant polymer on earth yarm ah it's the one that i have in my facts <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, it's cellulose. Cellulose. Okay, so let's put that as your arms fact. That's fact number 18. Cellulose is the most abundant <laughs> Did you have that as well? Like, I, I did. I had a bit of carry-on, but that was like part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have but any carry-on. But you tell your part of fact. What did you have? Um, that's, that's my... I just know, like, I wrote down for this that, like, cellulose, you find that in all cell walls and plants. So... Mm -hmm. Wherever you have a plant, you have lots of cellulose. And something that I didn't know is that cotton, for example, is 90% cellulose. So I'm wearing like cellulose right now myself. So I, yeah, I found that. I also found something saying that um, maybe all of like of the non-fossil carbon that's like organic, it's from organisms. Um, it's about 30%, almost a third of it is cellulose. And the other things that sort of compete would be something like lignin, mm -hmm. um, pectin. So lignin is also, lignin is like wood. Pectin is this like um, thing that is inside apple seeds that you make jelly from, right? Yeah. And then chitin, which is like the skeleton of an animal, of a, in, an insect. Mm -hmm. And then keratin, which is the one that's like the skin of like skin and hair of, of us. Um, yeah. which is also the enemy for anyone who's ever done <laughs> mass spec. Mass spec is a, a process where you try to identify the proteins that you have in a sort of a given sample. And often when you're using plant samples, you come up with a ton of keratin, which is not because the plant itself has keratin in it. Um, it's because keratin is flying through the air from your your skin and your hair and your beard and... yeah. Yeah, everything. All the filthy humans. It's really hard to get rid of, so you just have to figure out clever ways to get rid of it in your analysis. Um, yeah, because like I tried, like I, I was doing part of my experiments in like full, like had like something to cover my my hair on the head, something to cover my beard, um, a mask to not breathe on my samples, like everything covered, like no skin showing. While I was preparing my protein samples, I still had keratin in it in the end. So I gave up the fight and I just dealt with it. But yeah. Um, so I have a follow-on from that, mm -hmm. which is that, um, so cellulose is super abundant and it's also like quite, it's not like a plastic. It's a nice thing. It's it's degradable and it's, you know, natural as far as being, it's not going to sit and, and infest the oceans for, for decades and centuries and centuries. So, one not very new fact, but something from 2017 is that there was a publication showing that we might be able to use cellulose to 3D print. Mm -hmm. so this is basically you take these polymers and you mix it with acetate, which I think is basically nail polish remover, and you can get it into no, a that's kind acetone. of like ah acetate, acetate is, is um, like based from from acetic acid, a polymer of acetic acid, I think. Okay, acetate. Let me check. Yeah, you're right. It's a base of acetic acid. Okay, so you get acetate. <laughs> I don't know what acetate is, but here's here's the thing. So it's they made cellulose acetate, which contains cellulose and acetate sort of like as a chemically bonded thing. But they can dissolve that in acetone, which I guess mm -hmm. is the nail polish remover. And then be once it's dissolved, you can sort of squirt it through a nozzle. Mm -hmm. And then the acetone itself is 
it evaporates very quickly. Um, it's an it's an alcohol, just like vanishes. So you end up getting this cellulose acetate, which solidifies. It's no longer liquid because the acetone has gone. So you can basically three D print with this kind of liquidy like material, mm-hmm. um, or like at least like you know more squishy than a full solid. And then as the acetone evaporates, you get more solid. And then there's a second second step where you can like exchange somehow you can treat it in a way that um makes it even stronger so you basically can can make that into a nice material the thing is this has come out in 2017 and i haven't seen anything on this recently so i'm not sure like yeah i mean i mean it's obviously a proof of proof of concept but i think it's quite interesting right yeah i mean the, the thing with 3d printing is there's so many novelty like uh, compounds that you can 3D print with. I've seen so much from like literally molten glass that people are 3D printing with to all kinds yep. of polymers and plastics and stuff. Like the the most common one is based on lactic acid, for example. It's this PLA stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That's the stuff that you find in like any standard 3D printer. Uh, and I, I imagine that even the cellulose acetate stuff has its application somewhere. And like some, some people are very happy to use it. Well, but, but like... The application is, is is limited. Like so many 3D printing stuff is, is like a, a very small area where it's very, very cool, but you can't really use it for like large scale things as, as of yet. Hmm. Okay, I have a word. Can I throw a word at you? Or have uh, you got I, I have something to follow up on okay. just like big numbers. Um I don't know how to phrase this as a question, so I'm going to just say it as a statement. Um, <laughs> there's twice as much Rubisco on the planet than there are humans by weight. By weight? Yes. Wait, what? I found a paper that says that Rubisco is the most abundant protein complex on Earth. It's um, it's part of the photosynthetic machinery. It's actually a mm-hmm. thing that takes like the carbon dioxide from the air um, and... Is it no? It's not the one that ripped it apart. I shouldn't know that. <laughs> it's the one that fixes the carbon. It's it's the one that then actually puts makes the the polymers of carbon. It's it's involved in the carbon fixing cycle uh, for the synthesis. Every now and then you take some ruby pee and fix it in with CO two. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, according to the calculations of a paper called the Global Mass and Average Rate of Rubisco, there are 700 megatons of Rubisco. So that's 700 (laughs) billion tons of Rubisco. And no, it's actually more than twice humans if I calculate it right, because there's uh, three. Wait, did you do the hu- did you calculate the humans or did they calculate? No, the I, I looked up how many humans there are by weight, and it's uh, three hundred and thirty-two million tons. And this is um, no, this is also seven hundred million tons. Yeah, gigatons would have been billion. No, I'm million so tons. Confused. So seven hundred million tons. Seven hundred million this. tons of Rubisco versus three hundred and thirty million tons of humans. Um, so if you mm-hmm. would isolate all of the Rubisco and put it in a pile and then put all the humans <laughs> on a pile, Rubisco pile would be twice as big. Twice as heavy. Twice as heavy. Yeah, I mean, and the humans would already be dead because they've taken all the risk. Right? <laughs> yeah, everybody would be dead in that scenario. <laughs> <laughs> like literally everybody, <laughs> because there would be no more um, photosynthesis happening anywhere. Um, so <laughs> don't do that's, that. That's, <laughs> that's a fact that is like interesting but completely irrelevant. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is gonna have no impact on my life. 
Yeah, but I imagine like Rubisco is this thing that I see in textbooks and it's like this tiny thing in a chloroplast. So I imagine like, oh yeah, it's very tiny. So it's like, it's small. I know it's like in every it protein gel that I run. I do know it's smaller than me. But there's just so much of it. There's just so much of it on uh, on Earth. I mean, it's also whenever they say like every single cell has enough DNA to stretch it out to be like two meters long. That's insane, right? If you... Yeah. I mean, I'm not even two meters long. No, but your intestine is what? Like seven meters or something? So... So yeah. that's longer than... But my intestine is made up of how many cells? Like so many cells. And all of them, every <laughs> single one of them has something like two meters of DNA. That's insane. Mm-hmm. It's so many meters, Yoram. <laughs> it's too many meters. Um, uh, technically, it would be my turn now to, to yell a word at you, but I think... Yell you- a word. No, you yell a word. I'm happy to be yelled at. <laughs> um, then I'm trying to go with... Fire! Fire! <laughs> Fire, Tegan. Do you want to talk about fire? <laughs> no, I want you to talk about fire. <laughs> um, no, I don't have anything about fire. Um, I'll come back to that later. You find the word. Um, maybe something about screaming. Or st- I ha- I have something about screaming, actually. Yeah, then go for it. I mean, it is also something that we've already talked about on the blog, but it is one of my favorite things. So it's the name of certain genes. Um and there's genes in the plants that are sort of called the, the genes or the mutants, which don't have the genes. They're called scream, speechless, too many mouths, or mute. Um, <laughs> and do you remember what these genes are for? We've discussed them before on our blog in the yeah. Halloween special where we talked about like really cool but also spooky genomes. Yeah, gene but I completely names. forgot. Like Too many mouths, I can imagine. Maybe too many stomata openings. Exactly. So these are all mutants or genes involved in development of of the stomata and the stomata are these little air holes that are usually on the bottom of leaves but in leaves and they have sort of um how would you say it like gates that open and close Mm -hmm. to let air in um or stop it from coming in they're not really stopping the air coming in but the problem is when when you're open and the air comes in water also goes out so they they often close when it's really hot in the day because they don't want a lot of a lot of water coming out and these these tomato are obviously like vitally important it's you know all of how the plant functions relies on these little air holes because you need to get carbon dioxide going in in order to photosynthesize um but they're also like bringing water out and bringing water out of the leaves is also the way that the plant pulls up all of those nutrients from its roots so like it's all about stomata you cannot like you cannot overstate how important the stomata (laughs) is and that's something that scientists always say about their topic of research but i think it's true in the case of stomata they are like the best um and anyway so they have to develop there's sort of like a developmental pathway for how how many stomata they are how big they are like whether the the guard cells which are kind of the bits on the edge that open like let the hole open and close whether they develop properly this is all like a a very important regulated process because you know if there's too many or too few or um not properly regulated stomata the plant will die it will just die your arm um so <laughs> no, people have not the plant <laughs> i want the plant to live looked, looked at how this process is regulated and how it's like also flexible depending on the environment or the, the developmental stage of the leaf or you know if it's too hot outside maybe let's make less stomata or whatever and the mutants and the genes that are involved are called scream so speechless you can imagine i think is when there's not many stomata being formed so you've disrupted it somehow and you you're not getting those holes so it's speechless. It doesn't have a little mouth. Too many mouths is like the opposite problem, 
when you've made too many stomata and I think mute also you've like stopped them from forming properly so mm-hmm. I, I really like when scientists give genes these like little cute names which they're helpful for actually understanding the function I mean it, it's it's immediately I can think of too many mouths and I can immediately think okay too many mouths you know that's involved in the amount of of stomata like it's it's really clear to me yeah yeah <laughs> i mean if you look at the micrograph like uh, through a microscope at at the underside of a leaf where the stomata are like they look like little mouth with like they look like mouths. the guard cells could be the lips and so it's very like easy to come up with the idea that like you have a lot of mouth uh or too little of them or too few of them and a bonus fact for you here, um, not a real fact, but half a fact, um, linked back to how we can see the link back to acetone. Let's link back to acetone. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the old school ways of looking at how, how the mouths were on leaves was to paint the underside of a leaf where most of the mouths are, the stomata are, with nail polish. And then the nail polish dries and it basically makes a fingerprint, an impression. Mm-hmm. And you can just peel that off and look at that under the microscope to see how the mouths are. And that's good because if you just put the leaf under the microscope, the leaf is like, firstly, it's it's very dense. You know, you've got, you, the light won't go through easily. But secondly, you know, it changes, it dies and it, it's, yeah. it's changing the shape. So like you can get this kind of instant snapshot by like nail, polish. nail polishing yeah. a whole lot of leaves. And That's I quite like cool. that. Like a, a kind of older male professor told me, you know what? The trick is nail polish. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> Which is also like one of my favorite, like our favorite topics, I would say, is like hacks. Yeah. Where you use ordinary things and make them science. Yeah. I have something related to screaming. Um, it's you, You've probably heard the, the sort of factoid that some people say that when you cut grass the smell that we that you smell that we like very often is actually the the grass screaming for help is what they say Mm -hmm. um so uh what i found is that it's not only like screaming to other grasses like it's saying like look we're being eaten prepare yourselves like run away or at least become like bitter and unpleasant to eat um it's signaling also uh to wasps to a specific kind of wasp that um, usually, like usually, it's the grass is not attacked by a lawnmower, but by like insects that are eating on it, and so they send out these chemical signals um, that you can smell—the smell of fresh grass—that uh, attracts then a specific kind of wasp that then feeds on these insects. Um, and this is a, they found that in a, in a study um, where they had identified the specific enzyme that was involved in that signaling like to trigger that emission of these these volatiles, these like compounds that go in the air that we can smell. That's so cool. the smell of freshly cut grass is not meant for us. It's meant for other grasses and for wasps and like specific kinds of wasps, not like I think not the regular kind of wasp that annoys us, but like um, specific predatory wasps that go for other insects. Do you have another word for me, Tegan? Earth. Earth. Yeah, Earth. I have a good thing that's related somewhat to Earth. Again, from Rahul Kumar, who sent that on Twitter. Um, there's a specific plant um, called Cerato, Ceratocarium agenteum, um, which produces seeds that smell like dung and look like dung. And mm-hmm. would do you have a guess why that would be good? Uh, they want to be collected by dung beetles. Yeah. Hey, really? Yes. Um, they, uh, the dung beetles, their behavior is to like find pieces of dung and then roll it and then bury mm-hmm. it somewhere, put their eggs inside, and then like their larvae 
hatch and then eat the dung and then they become dung beetles again and the cycle repeats. Uh, it's a circle of life. And these, this plant produces dung lookalikes that then the beetle comes and then they roll it and they bury it somewhere but then it has a very tough hard shell so the beetle tries to like eat it or put its eggs in there and realize oh this is actually not working this is weird dung this is hard dung I don't mm. like it and it wanders off and goes to somewhere else but it has already dispersed the seeds um, so does the, it, te- the, it doesn't like test the seed before it buries it? apparently not the dung beetle doesn't okay. get anything out of it but it still it still works this relationship um, and this is how this plant distributes its seeds that's very cool dung beetles i kind of find kind of fascinating because they seem to be some sort of model species as well like you can i don't i'm not sure what we're studying exactly but (laughs) i think because yeah because they're laying their eggs in the dung maybe it's a study of like the the health of the environment or something yeah every now and then i like in my current job i feel like i see every now and then a a study which is like dung beetles and something's happening with the environment and climate i'm like this is like so cool that dung beetles are maybe they're a good easy to observe indicator like if they disappear you know that you have a diversity problem in like your body change their behavior also right so they're also like i mean they're ecosystem engineers they're yeah they're moving they're moving (laughs) shit around they're getting (laughs) done quite literally (laughs) yes Okay, so another another one for Earth. Should I yeah? Do you have something you? for Earth? Oh, as well? I, oh, I do have one for Earth actually. This is um, sent in by a friend, but I think it's also just generally a super cool thing that I remember from like ten years ago when I was doing my honors. So when I was back in Australia doing my my fourth year project, and it's just the fact that there's a thing that is underground orchids. Uh-huh. So when you think of orchids, you think of these sort of beautiful flowers growing quite often like on trees, like they're epiphytes, yeah. they like to, to cling to the trees, so they like being high up. But there are some orchids that like to grow literally under the earth. Um, this is, the one I'm talking about particularly is called Rizanthella gardinerae. Mm-hmm. Um, it's found in West Australia in the southwestern region, so that's sort of where I grew up, so that's why it's a little bit dear to my heart. And it's, yeah, it's an orchid that spends its entire life cycle, including flowers, like sort of below the the soil surface. And these flowers, you should definitely Google them. They almost look a little bit like an open pomegranate. So they're very like sort of white and trans, almost translucent, but inside there's a little bit of redness. Um, and yeah, they're mostly just hanging out there under a little bit of leaf litter under the ground. Um, but there's lots of there's lots of things wandering around in the soil, so they they seem to get their way and be mm-hmm. be pollinated. Of course, the problem here is that they're they are very rare, but it's hard to tell if they're rare or we just can't find them. Um, <laughs> a little bit. I think they are they are sort of known to be rare, um, but yeah, it's they are a little bit enigmatic, and I, they also have this this sort of they're parasitic, right? So the fact that they're all underground obviously means that they can't be photosynthesizing because they don't get any sunlight. Um, so they're they're hanging on to other things and basically just stealing blatantly, which yeah, I always I always quite, <laughs> not, quite like. Yeah, I have something um, that relates to flowers. You said the word flowers, right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting... Um, it's a little bit desperate for a plant podcast when you're saying you said the word flowers, right? <laughs> flowers, they are related to plants, right? <laughs> Please don't leave me hanging. <laughs> Did you say plant? Did you say the word green? Did you say leaf? <laughs> 
I did say flower. Um, if I if I said like Tegan, I will give you hundreds of daisies. Like, how much do you think? How uh, hundreds of daisy flowers? How full do you think my hands would be? If I tell you like hundreds of daisy flowers, I'm giving to you. I think I know this fact. Yes. <laughs> so. I imagine it would be a full bouquet because anything else would make me think that you didn't love me and I'd be super upset. And then I mean, I'd be angry true. and then I would break your stuff. So I think like... But then you could like take a daisy flower and pick off like one petal out of, at a time and be like, he loves me, he, he loves, loves me. me. He loves... Isn't that a thing with daisies that like we deliberately do that with daisies because they have um, an odd number of petals so if you do it with a daisy you always end up on he loves me oh i don't Isn't know that, that kind of when i, I researched think that when i researched that it's, it's, it's like many different kinds of daisies that have very different numbers of petals and it's not mm-hmm. really petals now because the fun fact that i have here <laughs> um also from bethany nichols um is that daisy flowers they aren't just like one singular flower where mm. you have like all of the like botanical parts of a flower just present on one. There's like actually hundreds of flowers. Like they have disc flowers. That's the yellow part in the middle. All of these are individual flowers with in- individual like tubes that lead to excels. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and the pistils and everything that belongs in a flower is present in every single little yellow bit. And also all of the white petals, they are also each in the one individually a flower. What? Um, and... Yeah, and that's that's why they like hundreds of daisy flowers is literally just, if you pluck one daisy, you have hundreds of daisy flowers in your hand. So I feel like I knew that about sunflowers because you have this sort of yeah, this big yellow wreath which is not doing much, and then you've got these little tiny flowers. If you look closely you can actually see it with a sunflower, but I didn't know that about daisies. Yeah. I think I mean with a sunflower also you end up with all of these different seeds and each of those seeds is coming from one of the flowers, right? But yeah. I don't know what daisy seeds like look like. Yeah, I also don't know. Like in my head, they look like dandelion um, seeds, but they probably don't look at all like this. Um, maybe I can look it up. Oh, they are a bit. They're a bit fluffy. Yeah, you're not wrong. They're kind of dandelion-y. Yeah. Ha. So I guess... <laughs> Completely <laughs> wild guess. Um, but it's, yeah, they, they have like a little fluff that helps them to be dispersed by the wind a little bit further and the word of the day is spots spots oh stripes dolphin i have something like (laughs) i have nothing for dolphin um i have something for sort of stripes it looks a little bit like stripes on a plant it's a very far stretch how desperate is this it's very desperate. I this think is fact it, number 24, so it's the second last, the penultimate fact of the podcast today, so it better be yeah, a good one, Yara. I, I know that the ultimate fact will be good. The penultimate <laughs> is just a filler until we get to a very good fact. <laughs> and the filler fact of today is that there is a ficus or ficus that will strangle you, but only if you are a tree. Um, that's also from Twitter from Sam, um, pointing me to strangler fix. Uh, and these are figs that are growing in the tropical forests where they sort of start as epiphytes on top of a tree similar to the orchids that we talked about today and then when they grow they they start making roots and the roots grow go down grow downwards along the trunk into the soil 
end. Um, when then the underlying tree grows, it can actually be strangled by the strangler fig. Um, and then the tree dies, but the fig remains, and you get like this hollow trunk of the strangler fig. When it's like very old, it gets like very thick and woody, so it can support itself. Um, but it's hollow inside where the tree used to be um, that that it's strangled, and it's unclear whether it does that sort of on purpose the strangling or it's, it's an unfortunate side effect of of the way it grows. Um, it's hard to tell because there's also some people say that like the strangler fig is is sort of supporting the underlying tree as well, like a cast. So it's also like makes it more sturdy against wind. Um, mm. But at the same time, yeah, if it strangles it, if it breaks the, the flow of nutrients uh, in the tree, then it's not really beneficial. I mean, it's literally called strangle fig. I think we can all agree it's a jerk. Like, it's not <laughs> It's not like cuddle fig. If it was a nice fig, it would be called cuddle fig. But I think we all know. <laughs> yeah. The people have spoken, it is a jerk. <laughs> I wonder what, um, what is it Peter von Leben would say about... Um, <laughs> Strangle figs. This is the book that we read where it was all very plants helping plants, loving plants, nursing plants. <laughs> I wonder mind, what he would say about strangle figs. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in my mind, he sort of fused with Werner Herzog, um, like the, the director that has like a very strong German accent, is always very dramatic because Peter Wohlheben is always about the pain in the trees. And so it would probably say something about a strangler fig, like existence is pain especially if you have a strangler fig growing on you it's so painful for the tree when it experiences the pain of being strangled i felt he was talking a lot about like love so maybe like then the 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 fig gives a nice little cuddle and wraps its arms around the other but then there is pain doesn't get cold there's pain from being strangled and the trees cry in pain It was a lot, it was a lot of crying. It was a lot of crying for a book about plants. Yeah. Um, by the way, guys, you should listen to our other podcast, which is called The Plant Book Club. We just have a new podcast episode that has come out yeah. about um, this book by Peter Volleben. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. And personally, I had some notes. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> it was interesting, but it was not my favorite so far, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you are interested in trees and or interested in a discussion about um, good or bad uh, popular science writing, this is an episode for you. Uh, because it's both <laughs> in, in, in our little book club. Um, yeah, we're linking to that as well. So uh, I'm shouting out a word for myself for the last fact for today. It's cats. Who could have guessed that we're ending on a cat fact? Even in our long like, spree of facts. Um, I found um, a story about the fact that the cat genome used to be better, like our understanding of the cat reference genome used to be much more precise than our understanding of the human reference genome. Um, <laughs> and I have no explanation for why. Um, That's not a fact. That's just like... If, no. you don't, if you can't say why. There's the, the 99 Lives Cat Genome Sequencing Initiative, and they systematically okay. sequenced um, a lot of cat genomes. And apparently the cat <laughs> genome is much they easier to assemble. They call it 99 Lives? Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I, I mainly like stuck with this fact because it also says that the cat genome is better than the dog genome in terms of quality. Um, 
which is very like next close to my heart. Um, sure. But interestingly, like um, cats, the, like the structure of the genome, and I know too little about genome structures to really explain what it means. Uh, but the cat, the genome ge- structure facts will be included next week. Yaron's <laughs> going to research them before next week's no, podcast. I won't. Um, but the, the structure of the cat genome apparently is very similar to the structure of the human genome, um, which makes it interesting as a sort of place to study certain genetic diseases. I just saw an article diseases. about this the other day about how cats are really similar to humans and I was like, this is this is yeah. crazy. I mean, chimpanzees, yes. Cats, no. And the other thing that was also in this, this story... So it means, it means like the physical structure is yeah. similar, like the 3D shape of the genome yeah. as opposed to the actual, like the bases that make up the, the ATCG of the deer. Okay. Sort of so the, there are chimpanzees a wing, but when you sort of look at them... Under a microscope, you're like, that's a cat, that's a chimpanzee. Don't know if that's a cat or a human. Could yeah. be either. Yeah. Um, and they get um, some genetic diseases are similar in cats and in humans. That makes them interesting to study. But for example, what I also found Which is ones? that... Um, they don't. They didn't say that. It wasn't that's very a, concerning given how much I snuggle up with cats. Yeah, like, but it's not cancer. I'm having more more mouth-to-mouth contact with a cat than I should be having if there's a lot of diseases shared. There's like genetic diseases that we're talking about here. So as long as you're not breeding with the cats, um, that's, that's, that should be fine. I definitely um, rub my face against strange cats in the street, though. Yeah, I mean, infectious diseases, I have no idea. Um, but yeah, so... They are, they have some similar diseases, but for example, cancer cats get much less cancer than, for example, humans or dogs, and that could be they interesting. They also only to live like ten years. Yeah, but dogs, like some of them, also only live ten years, and they're like riddled with tumors. Like that's a dog, though. Yeah, yeah it's filthy. We want to we want to aspire to be better than dogs, don't we? Yeah, but that's why it's interesting to study the cat genome because it can tell us a lot about like um, like cancerous diseases, for examples. For example, and that's what the 99 Lives Cat Genome Sequencing Project Initiative is is all about. So yeah, that's the first quarter of our of our marathon to a hundred somewhat plant related facts <laughs> and science. I think most of those were plant. I think we did very well. Yeah, I, we had shows with less plant facts than today. Definitely, we've had some plants where I'm like, are we really doing? We've had some podcasts where I'm like, have we really done a plant podcast today? I'm not feeling good about. <laughs> Calling ourselves a plant podcast. (laughs) To to be honest, one of my facts today was that turtles sometimes hide under moss. And I didn't feel confident about including that. So it's it's probably good that I have more time (laughs) to find more facts. Yeah, I'm. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next uh, iteration of this. To like uh, facts twenty six to fifty is um, next week. Uh, Until then. I think all that's left to say is thank you for listening. If you have more facts, send them our way. It was a pleasure to read all of your facts on Twitter. Um, and so you can Realistically, do that. Realistically, those of you on Instagram, you've kind of got to, you've got to get your bums in order. It's not, yeah. it's not as productive as a Twitter environment. <laughs> I was surprised. Like I, I was really, really happily surprised about um, all of the facts that came in. And some of them I, still are coming in and didn't make it an, into the list just yet, but they will make it into the future lists. I strongly believe that Instagram is a better place than Twitter, and I, I don't want that belief to be shaken. So. It's definitely a nicer place. 
It's so much nicer. Um, but it would be ni- it would be good if it was not just nicer, but also factier. <laughs> so if you have, and as you can tell from this this last hour, they don't have to be good quality facts. Some of them can be like quite oh, crap. That, that that's <laughs> no, I think most of them. That no, they, I'm not, I mean the beautiful Instagram. facts, Tegan. All of them, every single one of them. I could not pick a favorite amongst them. It's like picking a favorite child with these facts. I think, yeah, I think they were quite good. I think there was a couple <laughs> of mine where I could have, like, I could have tried harder with a couple of them. No, don't be. No, don't no, be too hard. Um, yeah, we'll see you again next week for <laughs> part two of four. We're going to be doing this through kind of the summer weeks. Um, and getting our 100 part A, part B, part C, and part D out. Yeah. Yeah. It also makes our life easy because we I can wonder use if, these facts. Like, yeah. I, I have prepared a couple more facts than what we talked about today, but I don't have anywhere near 50 so far. I wonder what, how much I will be scrambling towards the end. <laughs> like, I wonder if Plots, the facts will get... they're green, hey? <laughs> better. Fact number 55. Or much worse when we reach 100. <laughs> It will be interesting that, to see. That is why we need you, dear listener, to to fuel this insanity to make sure. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even look realistically, Yoram, We haven't even talked about plants in space. There's at least thirty facts just about what plants <laughs> do when they go to space. Yeah, and I think that's going to be episode four. Is just I think I think this is this is a problem here. We've got to be like clustering our facts. <laughs> I think this is now stuff that we can discuss internally. Um, until then, you can reach out to us on social I have media. Notes, Yoram. Notes. At, <laughs> at, at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. Please send me more really cool fun facts and make my life so much easier because I don't have to. I mean, I, t- I researched all of like, I, I tried to back them all up with papers. Um, but mm. still, it makes it so much easier if you know to, what to look for than if you're just like poking in the dark. So yeah, that's on Twitter at Plants Pipettes. Um, on Instagram and sometimes on Facebook. Facebook, uh, it's at plants and pipettes, and there you talk to me. Uh, you can also, if you want to read more about the world of plants, um, on our blog, uh, plantsandpipettes.com, you can find new stories about the world of plant biology. Um, we just published a new story that we also mentioned today um, about how plants are able to listen to bees and make their nectar sweeter in as a response. Our opening and closing music, as always, is Caravana by Philip Gross. Exactly, and goodbye. We'll see you next time. Bye.